received an email uh, from a man some time back, and he asked the question uh, as to what individuals have in their personal responsibility to preach the gospel to the world. He apparently is not a member of the Living Church of God, but his question was a valid question, and it deserves an honest answer. What is the responsibility beyond supporting the work? Now, the very question that he asked indicates that he believes there is work to do, and so I'd like to address that part of it right off because uh, we are not always in harmony with some other groups, or they're not in harmony with us, to understand that there is a work to do. After the breakup of the worldwide church back in the, uh, the 90s, there were a number of individuals who went out and started various works, and they said that the work is finished, that our responsibility is to get the bride ready. And they could turn to Revelation, the 19th chapter, which we'll do right now, because the contention that the work is finished was really based on one half of one verse in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now, there was talk about the fact that the uh, the bride must get herself ready. But the question that I have concerning this is, where is the majority of the bride of Christ today? And there is a very simple answer, indisputable answer, regarding that. Where is the majority of the bride of Christ today? How many of you think you know? I'm not going to call on you, but how many of you think you know where the majority of the bride of Christ is today? Okay. A few brave hands up there. Well, let me give you the answer. They're six feet under the ground. They're dead. Waiting for the return of Christ. And the reason I bring that out is because the idea that somehow there's this group at the end that must get good enough in order for Christ's return is, is simply not so. The bride of Christ is made up of the apostles and the first century Christians of that time, and all the way down through history. We're all a part of the bride of Christ. And so the majority have already lived and died. Now there may be a majority, we don't know how many will come along before the end, but I'm just saying right now, if you take all of the various groups that call themselves Church of God, and you put us all together, we would not match as many as have gone before us. And so the idea that well, we just have to get the church good enough for Christ to return, is a smokescreen. And it's basically saying, I don't have the faith, or we don't have the faith, to do the job that God has given to us, to carry the gospel all the way to the end, and to warn the world of what is coming. And it turns inward instead of outward in preaching the gospel to the world. There's another idea that people have, and that is that if we have a work to do, it's through personal evangelism. And this was a little bit behind the writer's question, and it does not mean that there is no place for personal evangelism, but again, so many have turned inward, and they fish in the pond of the greater church of God, but they do not think of the fact that there's a whole world of seven billion people out here that we must warn of what's coming and, and especially uh, uh, do the work of, of preaching, hoping that some will repent, hoping that some will be a part of us. And you know what? It's exciting when we do see new people coming along. And the idea that the work finished 30 years ago just does not match with the facts. When I went to Toronto, we had about 60 people in the Toronto congregation. Actually, Mississauga, but most of you may not have heard of Mississauga, or some of you may not have. It happens to be the sixth or seventh largest city in Canada, but about 720 or so thousand people. But it's a suburb of Toronto. And we had about 60 people there. Today, from that one congregation, we have a Scarborough congregation, and we have a St. Catherine's congregation. 
And we have somewhere around 170, 180 people. We've tripled in size, you know, from 60 to, let's say, about 180 approximate numbers. And almost all of those people did not have a worldwide background. They are new because of the telecast that has gone out and the literature that's gone out. And that's just one area out of many. And I would guess that there are many people who are sitting right here who did not come out of the worldwide church, but who are brand new to the truth. I say brand new, maybe five years ago, ten years ago, so that's not exactly brand new, but I would imagine that there are a number who are here. And there are people that are coming along out of the world, people coming to repentance, helping out in preaching the gospel to the world, and we're very thankful for them. And, you know, you're not chump change. You are valuable. You are valuable. And we treasure every single one who comes to repentance. And there are people that are coming to repentance. The work has not finished. Another idea that is out there is that, well, the church just teaches pray and pay. Now, I can't say it the way they do. But there's a certain way that people say, oh, all we have to do is pray and pay. That's all we're allowed to do. I remember Mr. Carl McNair in Lake of the Ozarks one time that uh, he, he addressed that subject. And I, I, I don't have quite the emotion that he had. But uh, he really took umbrage at that whole idea that, you know, as though it's a, a cynical thing to say that we should support the work through prayers and financially. So what does the Bible teach us about pray and pay? Well, let's notice Second Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, and we'll notice verses 1 and 2. He says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. So here was the Apostle Paul admonishing the, uh, the people at Thessalonica to pray that the word of the Lord would run swiftly. And be glorified just as it is with you. You see, all those were new people. If, if they had had the approach, well, Christ is dead, the work's finished, and there's nothing to do, we wouldn't be here today. But because they did the job and there were people coming into the truth at that time, it has continued. And so he says, pray that it will continue to run swiftly, you might say, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So we are to pray for the leaders of the church, especially. Uh, the Apostle Paul was speaking of himself and his fellow ministers at that point. He wasn't saying we don't pray for others, because if you read the Apostle Paul's writings all the way through, he says, I remember you often in my prayers, or all the time, continually in my prayers. So the Apostle Paul was praying for the members in the various groups, and he was asking the, the uh, members of the church, the various congregations, to pray for him that he would be effective in preaching the gospel. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, Ephesians 6 and verse 17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplications in the Spirit, being watchful of this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, so to pray for all the saints and for me, he said, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, we live in a, a very interesting world today with all that's going on. And it's important that, that we all pray that God's servants do speak boldly the truth. We have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But brethren, if we think we're going to get out of this like it's some sort of a, a cakewalk and have no problems and we're not going to be persecuted, we're, we're sadly mistaken. And, and frankly, if we do get out of it without being persecuted, there's something wrong with us. And we shouldn't go out there deliberately trying it but the church of God is going to preach the gospel boldly to this world. And we certainly better. And if we're afraid to, then that's a problem for us. 
this world has to hear. They're not going to listen to us any more than listen to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, any of the others. They won't listen. At least they will know that they have heard a message. I was watching the news yesterday afternoon or evening. They, they, they interviewed three or four different ministers on this, uh, was it HB2 or whatever it is, uh, House Bill number two. And so they had one that was standing up for the truth, and then we had one that was kind of middle ground, and then you had one that was, uh, it was a woman, uh, minister that probably is of a different persuasion than we are in more than one way. And uh, she was, you know, saying this is an awful, terrible thing that uh, we're discriminating against people and everything like that. And, and the, the reporter was saying it was interesting how there were so many different interpretations of the Bible. How do you interpret the fact that it says that no homosexual, no sodomites, etc., etc., will enter the kingdom of God? Not much to interpret there. It just says it. You go back to Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and it says, you know, there that it's an abomination for men to sleep with men and women to with women and so forth. It, it says it's an abomination in God's sight. There are so many places in Scripture that describe the fact that it is an abomination to God. And so when they say interpret, what are they interpreting? They are just throwing that out there. And nobody looks at the source. You won't find a news reporter that will look at it and say, well, this is what the Bible actually says. Now, make of it what you want to, but here's what it says. They won't say that. So the Bible shows that we are to pray for one another. And we are to pray that the leaders of, of God's church will be bold in speaking the truth. We look at Stephen. In Acts, the seventh chapter, he was bold in speaking the truth. And some might say, well, he, he was not wise. Well, he seemed to be a hero of the Bible. He spoke out. Now, what about this thing about paying? Well, I could go on for that, a whole sermon on it, but I'll just recommend a booklet for you. If you've not read it, I, I think that many of you have, and I hope all of you will read it if you haven't, and maybe review it if you haven't for a while, but it's titled, God's People Tithe. And I've heard, I can't say all the arguments, but I've heard a lot of arguments against it. It's a nice principle, but we don't have to do it and all. Well, read that booklet. We do have a responsibility. You do and I do. We all have a responsibility to help support the work so that it can go forward. The fact is that we can do more collectively than individually. We have a, a large group of people here because we're working together collectively. We have a church that has grown because we work together collectively. Here's a point. Where are all those groups who put all their eggs in the basket of personal evangelism or who said, well, the work's been done and there's nothing to do? Where are they? There are a lot of them out there, but how much have they truly grown? And have they grown from new people coming to the truth or just people swapping groups? Compare them with those who work together collectively. Whether we agree with a particular group or not is irrelevant. The, the point is that there are those who are working together collectively who have grown. And those that don't have a collective work in that way, a, a mission to preach the gospel to the world, I haven't grown that much. And where is the growth that is taking place there? One misunderstanding that many people have is that the majority of members have come through personal evangelism. Now, I remember hearing that many, many years ago, that the majority of people come through personal evangelism, and so therefore we really don't need to spend money on television, on all these other uh, platforms getting the, the message out. And... You know, that statement is partly true, but it's partly not true. And here's, maybe I shouldn't say partly not true, but it's a bit misleading. Now, let me explain. I came into the church through personal evangelism, you might say. 
I was getting on a school bus uh, in high school, and there was a fellow there that was a, a brother of a friend of mine who was talking about the sun going to be turned to blood and all kinds of weird stuff, prof- prophetic stuff and beasts, and we wanted to take him out and just shut him up. And somehow, uh, a very manipulative sort of fellow, and I, I agreed that I would read this booklet if, uh, uh, if I did, that he would never bring up the subject again. And so I read the booklet, uh, the book of Revelation Unveiled at Last. I uh, happened to be very sick that evening, not because of the booklet, I'm sure, but it got my attention. And so I could say that I came in as a result of personal evangelism. My wife came in because her parents or her father uh, came into the church, so she is a result of personal evangelism. And, and I think that if we took a survey here, we could say a lot of people have come in as a result of personal evangelism. If you grow up in the church, that's personal evangelism of your parents. But that can be misleading because without the support of the body of Christ through booklets, magazines, Bible study courses, telecasts, the Internet, Sabbath services, the number of those who claim to have been converted as a result of personal evangelism would be much, much smaller. Because I can guarantee I would not have come into the church because of this friend or this brother of a friend, if I hadn't read the booklet and if I hadn't had the support of all the rest, the magazine and all the booklets, and the truth that way. So it takes more than personal evangelism alone. It takes the support of, of uh, people working together, people striving together, putting out a magazine, having a radio program as it was then, or a television program, or the Internet. It takes all of us working together. And so while it is true that a large number, a large percentage of people are here as a result of personal evangelism, we would not be here if it weren't for the uh, greater church working behind it. Because I assure you, I would not have come in without that. By working together, fruit can be produced. In Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, Ecclesiastes, there's a, a principle here. Uh, I don't think I'm stretching it too much. Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, and verse 9, it says two are better than one. Now, you know, if you say two are better than one, then obviously you could expand that. There's a principle. Because they have a good reward for their labor. They work together, and there's a good reward for their labor. It's so much better when you have two people working on the job. Many hands make light work, as we often say, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken." It's a principle that by working together, by having more than just one, but two, but you can expand that on outward, it gives us greater strength. We've had sermonettes where people talk about, you know, taking sticks or pencils and you you can break one easily, but you put a whole bunch of them together and they can't be broken. You can have all kinds of analogies that way, but the fact is that working together as a team, we can accomplish far more than we can all by ourselves. Cynically labeling our role as pray and pay is really contrary to Scripture. So let's take a look at some of the things that we can do and must do. Example is certainly an important part of it. We talk about setting the example. And there are cynics that scoff at this and say, well, I never saw anybody come into the church as a result of example. Or, nobody ever came into the church as a result of my example. Well, really, uh, Matthew, the fifth chapter, tells us that example is important. And you see, because you're here, you, you believe these things, I, I think. I think that we, that's why we're here. We believe these things. We believe there's a work to do. We believe that working together 
makes a difference. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men. That's what Jesus said, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We had, uh, actually after I had this sermon uh, worked up, I was, I was looking for a tomorrow's world and I couldn't find it. We're still a little bit disorganized after moving and, and I, I happened to come across the Living Church News and, and here's an article, and I'd read it earlier, but... It just wasn't on my radar at the time. Let Your Light Shine by Dr. Meredith. This is the uh, July-August Living Church News. And he writes here, Are you a light? Jesus told his disciples, You are the light of the world. Later he said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He quotes Matthew 5 there. Jesus taught that we are not to put our light under a bushel, but on a candlestick where all can see. But how do we let our light shine before men? Notice that Jesus said men would see our works and glorify God. He did not say that they would hear our constant chattering about the Bible. Our good works, our kindness and thoughtfulness to others, our willingness to sacrifice our Christian example and daily living will cause even unconverted people to admire and respect us. Eventually, they will realize that it is God who is helping us live this way. Then they will glorify Him for arguing, disputing, and trying to convince people they are wrong is nowhere referred to as good works. If your friends or relatives are not interested in God's church, they will in no way be helped if you constantly plague them with what they regard as your religion. I, I could probably ask for a show of hands and see how many have made that mistake. I remember when I first got interested, I was so excited about it. I would try and tell everybody, and all the people I thought would hear wouldn't or didn't. My sister even said at one point, she said, uh, I would never join your church just because of you and this, this other fellow. <laughs> so I shut up. And then the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis came. And she knew that we knew something about prophecy, and she started asking questions. And eventually came into the church, went to Ambassador College. And uh, anyway, it, it's, uh, she's with some of the group today, but nevertheless, uh, she did what she said she would never do. But it was only after I shut up, because I was trying to shove it down her throat, as, as probably one or two of you at least have done. Uh, we, we try to convert people right away. Uh, we, we don't want to wait for God on that. Let's notice 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, because people say, well, I don't know of anybody that's been converted by example. Well, I, I think that we could disagree with that. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 16. He says, for how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, don't divorce that person if they're pleased to dwell with you, because that unconverted person, because that person may become converted. Now, I am absolutely certain there are people right here who, whose mate got interested first, and you weren't interested, but eventually you came around. I, I could ask for a show of hands, but I won't, because I think that we all know that there are people like that. I've heard too many stories over the years where one is not interested and one is, and I've even seen where the one that was interested in the beginning is not the one who is baptized first. But when you first visit them, the, the other is just not interested at all. But sometimes by example, uh, sometimes just by pure exposure to the truth, by the literature being around, the other one comes along. So example does work. The Apostle Paul says that it, it can work. He doesn't say it's going to work in every case. But he says, how do you know whether it's going to or not? And we know from just you know being around other people over the years that there are many people who are here because of the example of others. And I'll tell you another way that we can know, and that is our children. Because our children come to respect us 
when they, they see us doing it the right way. Not all of our children. I understand that. But there are many children who are with us because they have great respect for their parents and they know that their parents are doing what's right. And they, they see that example. They see God's rewards in their lives as a result of the parent. Not just the teaching, but the example itself. Because we can preach to our kids all we want to. But if they don't see the example of mom and dad living this way of life, it's not going to work. But when they see mom and dad living this way, mom and dad happy, mom and dad fulfilled and so forth, it does make a difference. Again, every kid has to make his, up his own mind. I understand that. But our example, the point is, does make a difference. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Here we see another place where we hear about example. The Apostle Paul tells the young evangelist Timothy, Let no one despise your youth. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So not only are we to be an example to those outside, but here he focuses in on the responsibility of Timothy to be an example to the membership. Because our example within the church makes a difference. I don't know how many young people I've heard over the years say that, well, you know, a bunch of hypocrites in this church. I don't mean here. I'm just speaking of, because I think that... Uh, We've got a terrific bunch of young people here from everything I can see. Young people who are truly with it. It's not always that way. But I've heard young people that, you know, they're, everybody's hypocrites. And not just, they're not necessarily turned off by their parents, but they're turned off by what they see in others. Now, I understand that young people are masters of observing hypocrisy at the same time they themselves are great hypocrites because they show one face at church and one face someplace else. So we can't let them off the hook. I understand that. But when they see hypocrisy amongst any of us, that's a turnoff for them. It gives them an excuse. There's a, a fellow that's in the church today, ordained minister. And he went through high school with a fellow who was in the church. Some of you know, in fact, many of you know, would know who I'm talking about, but I'll, I'll leave names out of it. But this young fellow grew up in the church, and in high school, his best friend used to give him a bad time about the church. And I don't know exactly what the, the point was, but at some point, because this young fellow, who wasn't baptized at the time, I don't think, but maybe he was by that, that point in time as they got toward you know, going off after high school. But at any rate, because of the example that this young man set, his best friend came into the church and is today an ordained minister. But it was because of the example of his friend that he is with us. Those things really do happen. Now you might say, well, what happens if no one comes in the church as a result of your example? I don't know that there have been others who have come into the church because of my example. I, I, I don't know. But I was shocked one time. We have a, had a neighbor up in Canada, and uh, we got to know them. They, they're Muslims, uh, nominal. But my wife helped out with the kids uh, taking care of them because the, the husband was HIV positive, and he had all kinds of health problems. He's today in a... A nursing home situation, and the wife was having to work and support the, the family and the, uh, the the girls that they had. Two girls oftentimes needed somebody to kind of watch over them, and so my wife helped out there. And this woman worked for a company involved with computers, so she was very computer literate. And she said one day, she said, I saw some of your sermons on the Internet. And at that time... I couldn't imagine what she had seen. Well, because I was working with the, the youth at the time, we had put, I'd put a few Bible studies for the young people up there. And they were pretty amateurish as far as the graphics as, as much as we had, which was almost nothing. But anyway, we had something out there. 
And she had Googled my name, and that's what came up. But she was curious about us. She wanted to know, who are these people that live next door to me? Uh, you know, she, she knew a little bit because we, you know, she asked questions and we explained things. And I, I think we would all be surprised how much our neighbors do know about us. I know already that every Sabbath as we get up and get in the car and leave, that our neighbors at one end there, they're going to see us leave and we're always dressed up and we've got a briefcase or whatever. They're going to put two and two together. If they haven't already, they're going to figure out that we go to church on Saturday because I mow the lawn on Sunday. And we kind of waited till somebody else did first because <laughs> we didn't want to be bad neighbors. But we saw that, well, okay, the, the neighborhood does that, then we'll go ahead and do that. But we get all dressed up on, on Saturday, and they know I'm a minister he, because he started asking questions about it and what I did and all. And uh, I, I think word's gotten around the neighborhood uh, one way or the other. I don't know how much word. But, but people see. They know. They recognize your example. One of the things that that we were quite taken aback by when we left Canada to go to the United Kingdom. We had a number of our neighbors come up and, and say how they were going to miss us. Uh, one of our neighbors on the other side of the, the previous example I gave invited us over for, for tea, and they're a little bit more than just nominal Muslims. Uh, he was showing us around the house when his, his big squawk box on the, on the wall started calling him to prayer. And we decided we'd probably better leave about that time. But uh, they invited us over for tea, and he, he just, you know, hated to see us leave. And he was a good neighbor to us. We had another neighbor across the street that we probably hadn't talked to more than two or three times, and they, they, he was just saying he really hated to see us leave. You know why? Because my wife works very hard in keeping the lawn and the yard looking nice and neat. You'd be surprised how little things like that make a difference. I mean, I'd mow the lawn too, but I have to give credit to my wife. She did a lot more work than I did outside. And, you know, people look at the outward appearance. And when, it, it, just think about it. If you've got neighbors, if you've got one that has weeds growing up all over the place and it's just an ugly yard and you've got another one on the other side, what are you going to think? Which one is the good neighbor to you? Which one is raising the value of your property and perhaps encouraging other people in the neighborhood to take a little bit more pride in their property? Now, don't come to my house today because, honestly, I do think we have probably the best crop of crabgrass any place in the city. They put this sod down, and it's about, I don't know, at least 50% crabgrass. In fact, they came over to look at it again because they know there's a problem. And it, it, you, literally, you have to mow it twice a week. It's, it's tall already, and I mowed it, what day, Tuesday or Wednesday, and it's, it's, it needs mowing again. I've got to mow it tomorrow. We have to mow it twice a week, and it still looks ugly. <laughs> but we hope to get it so that it is an example to others because that opens the door of respect from people. And it's going to take a lot of work to be able to do that. But it's something that you can do. Your example is seen, and it does count. What about those coming to services? John 13. John 13. What about example right here? John 13:35 says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Every congregation is different. It's different for a variety of reasons, but primarily because you have different personalities. And the smaller the congregation, it only takes a few people to, to give it that personality, either for good or for bad. But Jesus said that by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I hear from a lot of people uh, that visit congregations, they'll say, this is such a, a warm and loving congregation. Uh, I, I say this, meaning generically of different ones. And then every once in a while you hear that somebody says it's a cold congregation, or maybe it's a member, and, well, people aren't very friendly here. And our response should be, well, why don't you change that? Why don't you be a, 
a committee of one to begin to change that. If we don't think our example makes a difference in the congregation, and you'll forgive me if I've given this story again or any others, after you've spoken so many different places, you, you kind of forget what you've said where. In fact, sometimes I'm standing up there and thinking, did I give this sermon here before? I, I'm sure I didn't, but <laughs> I think that's only happened one time. But, but maybe that's because nobody was, was, uh, everybody was being so polite and they didn't want to you know, embarrass me. But I remember a family uh, in one location that the woman told me several times, actually. She said they'd come as a result of a Tomorrow's World presentation. And uh, they'd come for several weeks afterward. And she said, you know, people weren't very friendly there. And she actually prayed about it that morning that if things weren't different on that day, they were never coming back. And they were about ready to leave services on that occasion, and somebody noticed them going out the back door and had thought, you know, I hadn't seen this, hadn't said anything to this couple today. And they caught their eye and made a beeline back there and let them know how much they appreciated them being there. And this woman said, to me, I think at least three times, that's the only reason we're still here. Does example make a difference? It sure does. And you know what? Sometimes you as, as members can do what those of us who are in the ministry can't do because we get caught, sidetracked or something. But you can do what we sometimes can't do. And you recognize somebody new in the congregation and you're not tied up with duties, or some of you are. But you can go over and meet those people and let them know how much you appreciate them. And that makes a difference. That shows I care. I have concern for you. I notice that you are here. It's important. And I want to say to another group of people or a specific group of people how important that is. And that's our young people. And I don't care if you're 10 years old or if you're 15 years old or even if you're eight or seven, as long as you can understand what I'm saying. When I was young, we moved around a lot. My father was in the military, so we moved a lot. And so we met a lot of people over the years. And when my parents were telling us, well, we're going over to somebody's house this evening, then the first question my sister and I had, do they have kids our age? That's what we wanted to know. Because they didn't it was probably not going to be a fun night. And oftentimes, parents look for, or, you know, uh, families look for other families who have children because they have children. They want to, uh, you know, work things out for them. Well, you know, a young person who is here, and we've got some pretty bold young people uh, around. If you see somebody new in the congregation, you go up and, and let them know who you are and you're happy to see them, that makes a difference because if the kids are happy, mom and dad are probably going to be happier. But if the kids aren't happy for being someplace, well, parents may reevaluate, is this a place I want to be? So when you're young, you can make a difference. When I say some really bold young people here, I remember over in Marion, North Carolina, that would have been 1983 or 84, I think he might be here, maybe, I'm not sure, because I met him. Uh, we, we, we didn't have a piano player that day, so we had to sing a cappella. And at the end of the service, the uh, person who was leading song said, well, we found a piano player. This was for the last song. And he walked, I, I couldn't even see him. He was just a little guy, he's about seven years old. But he volunteered to play the piano. And he could only do it with one hand. And I remember when he got to the end, the last note there, he kind of hit a plunk, plunk, you know, just adding a little bit onto it. That's bold. <laughs> I would never try that. So you don't have to be an adult to be an example to someone else. Now, that wasn't engaging somebody else in conversation, but I'm just saying, Boldness. A lot of our young people are that way. Don't be afraid to engage new people. Don't be afraid to let them know that you notice that they're here 
and you're happy that they're here. I think that's really important, and young people can do that, and it makes a difference whether the church grows or whether the church doesn't grow. So let's come to personal evangelism. Is there a place for individuals to, quote, personally evangelize beyond setting an example? And, of course, the answer is yes. It is yes. So here are some things that we can do. One is walk through doors when they open. Walk through a door when it opens up. We had a business meeting in the United Kingdom regarding our pension plan. We have, by the beginning of next year, uh, every organization our size or every every business has to have a pension plan in place. So we, we were talking to this lady, and at the end of the meeting, she said, what makes your church different or distinct? So I explained a few things. And then she said, with all that is happening in the world, where do you think things are headed? Well, if she didn't want to know, she shouldn't ask. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of an open door, so I, I kind of stuck my foot in it a little bit through in the door, not in my mouth necessarily. <laughs> but I, I said a few things to try to, to help her to think. I said things are going to get worse before they get better, according to what we understand. But at a certain point, you begin to see that the bot from the body language that you've probably said about all you better say and just time to shut up. But I left with a few things to think about. There was another occasion when somebody uh, opened a door and I didn't walk through it. This man it was a brother of a member and he uh, had a heart attack and he was in the hospital. And so I went up and I visited with him. And at one point he said, you know, what's it all about? He was about 62. He said, what's it all about? In other words, what is life all about? And you know, that was a time maybe I should have walked through the door, but I didn't. Now, I've always wondered, maybe if I had said something, just a little bit, not, the, the you know, everything, but just a little bit to pique his interest, maybe that individual might have come along. He might not have listened to his brother, but maybe he'd listened to somebody else. He was knocking on a door. He was asking a sincere question. And perhaps I should have answered his question. We have the example in Acts, the eighth chapter, of the Ethiopian eunuch and how God used Philip to engage this individual in a conversation. There was a door being opened up for him. God's Spirit indicated to him that this was a special occasion. Acts, the 8th chapter, verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So here was an angel that spoke to him. We don't know in what form uh, the angel spoke to him, whether this was in spirit, whether he actually saw the angel, we, we really don't know. But he rose and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. And he was reading Isaiah the prophet. This was an individual, obviously, that had some means, because not everybody had a copy of the scriptures in those days, they were all handwritten. And so he had a scroll of Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So he ran and he overtook it. And he heard him reading Isaiah. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? Good question there. Good opening. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And so then we see from what happened after that. God does work out circumstances sometimes, very unusual. Again, forgive me if I've told you this. I, somehow I have the feeling I gave this sermon here before. Did I give this here before? No? Okay, good. It's our worst nightmare. <laughs> uh, not the worst, but it's a bad one. Um, you know, sometimes when you when you do something, God opens up a door. I rarely read the magazine when I'm on a plane. I like to read books. 
gives me the opportunity to do some reading that I don't otherwise do. Uh, reading the magazine is, I don't want to get my Bible out necessarily on the plane. It's hard enough just to balance everything as it is with the, the small space they give you these days. But I was going to uh, catch up on some, some emails, and so I had my, my computer with me. But I've got rather long arms for my body size, and so you kind of have to do this. It's just about like that. And, and after a few minutes, I thought, this is just not going to work. So I, I got my briefcase out, and I took out the Tomorrow's World magazine. We hadn't taken off yet. We were still sitting on the, uh, the, at, at the gate. And it was a little unusual because, like I say, I, I, I don't normally read the magazine probably this many times in all the years I've been on planes that I've actually gotten the magazine out and read it. And so this was really a rare occasion for me. And normally I got a direct flight from Vancouver to Toronto, but this time it was going to be a, a, a layover or a stop someplace, and it was going through Edmonton. And so I... Uh, I got the magazine out, and I was reading, and it was a smaller plane, just two seats, an aisle, and two seats. And as I was sitting there, this fellow came and sat down next to me. And I'm still reading there. We haven't moved from the gate yet. And he, he looks over at me, and I'd never seen him before in my life, and he said, uh, do you know Roderick Meredith? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. And uh, he said, have you ever met him? And... I started to answer the question. He was kind of like Rodney Dangerfield, just quick questions and all. And uh, I, I said yes. But anyway, uh, he said, my father's part of that church. I said, oh, really? I said, where does your father live? He said, uh, Halifax area, totally the opposite side of the country. I said, well, I, I used to uh, pastor that congregation, or used to fly out there to pastor it. I said, I know a lot of the members there. I said, uh, who's your father? And he told me his name, and it was our, our minister. And now things are beginning to come clear because I knew who this young man was. I say young man. He was probably 35, 40, no, 40-plus. Uh, and I, I knew that his son had been killed in a terrible car accident uh, on his way to work one morning about a year earlier. And our minister there, Mr. Wahavich, had performed the funeral. This young man had grown up in the church. And as we talked, he said some things that kind of surprised me. He said, you know, I don't understand how somebody can believe everything that they, they do for their whole life, and then somebody get up and give a sermon, and then they leave it all and go a different direction. He said that at least three or four times. That's one time I wish I had said a little bit more. Like, well, how is it that you could believe all the things you believe and throw it all away? But he was living a pretty good life. He'd actually come down from Kitimat. He was away from, from home for about three weeks, and then he'd come home for a week and then go back. He was making a lot of money and doing quite well and, and that sort of thing, and his father said he's just not ready because life is too good for him. And I was praying all the time that God help him to understand this is not an accident. Because what are the chances of this individual being on the same plane as I am, and not just the same plane, but sitting in the seat right next to me when there's only one seat next to me on the whole, you know, the whole plane? It's, uh, there's you know, all the seats. And then the fact that I was reading the magazine, because if I hadn't been reading the magazine, we'd have sat there and nothing would have ever happened, I'm sure. I didn't think it was an accident. And I couldn't wait to call his father, but he got off at Edmonton and I had to go back to Toronto and I, time changed and everything like that. I didn't get a chance to call his father that night. I called him up the next morning. I said, guess what? You'll never guess who I met. And he says, you met and his son. And I, uh, I said, oh, he must have called you. He said, yeah. He said, uh, he said, Dad, I don't think this was an accident. He recognized that God is working with him. And maybe he's not ready to come along yet, but God is working with him. Just like God is working probably with a lot of our children 
that may not be with us at the moment, but he hasn't given up on them. But it seemed to me that there were a couple incidences in this young man's life that really indicate that, that God is working with him. Don't be afraid to read the magazine on a plane or wherever else you may be, a train, a bus. Don't be afraid to do that. It may open a door. In other words, when a door opens, walk through it. Don't knock the door down. When somebody doesn't want to hear about it, don't go knocking the door down and trying to force it down their throat. But if the door opens up, don't be afraid to walk through it. In my life, I've found that I'm either too, you know, too anxious to tell the truth, uh, to pass the truth on and just make a mess of it, or I'm too shy to say something, maybe not bold enough to say something maybe when I should. It's hard to get that balance, isn't it? And many of us went one extreme, and now we've gone to the other extreme where we're afraid to ever say anything. And that's not the right thing. We've got to find that proper balance. Social media. If you go to the Tomorrow's World website, toward the bottom of the page, the, the main page, the home page, it has a section called Most Liked and Most Shared. And this is a way that, that all of us can engage people in the truth. You have a lot of relatives, a lot of friends, a lot of acquaintances out in the world. And when I look at the, the list, for example, the telecasts that are shared, the ones that are up there right now today, shares, is Christ, Christmas Christian. This is the one that is shared the most, 363 times. Now, that means that that is shared in such a way, if I understand all this, that everybody that goes to, they may share it with somebody else, and we have no idea how many people they share it with. Probably most people are not going to share it, but if you put it out there, then somebody may share it with somebody else and everybody on their list. So it can go out like uh, you know, a wave from a, a pebble being dropped in a, in a bowl of water. Christ versus Christianity, 255. Tomorrow's World Magazine, Play God or Obey God, 156 shares. The article on superbugs, 145. The booklets, uh, United States and, and Britain and Prophecy, uh, 833. The Holy Day booklet, 731. What's the point? The point is that I don't think that we're doing all we can. Now, we have to be very careful because we don't want to go sharing something with our friends that we know they're not interested in. But Mr. Smith has written some on science, uh, the one on the heart. He's written one about the hand. Uh, we have a lot of people out there that we might know who, uh, who, who believe in creation. And to give them something like this would be something they might be interested in, something to share with our friends. We have to be careful not to share everything because there are some... If we're sharing something every time, then they'll just think, well, there's that religious nut again. But if we share things strategically, things that we think are really valuable, really important, something that is timely in the news or in the world as a whole, that gives us an opportunity to reach out to other individuals. What I'm saying here is that the number of shares is so small compared to the size of the church compared to the, the number of people that we know in the church are on, what, Facebook or whatever all these different platforms are, different, uh, different ways of doing it. Now, it, it's possible that somebody already has shared it, and so all of your friends already have it. That's possible, and that could be one reason it hasn't gone further. But if we realize that when we share something, it goes out to a certain audience, and any one of those people can share it with a larger audience, it can go much further. Like our, our news and prophecy was 21,000. That's not a huge number, but that's a lot of people that are not in the church. How many church members are actually sharing that or, or have, have ordered that? Uh, maybe a quarter? 
because families are probably only one time. There are a lot of people out there that are getting that. And so how many other people are seeing the truth, having an opportunity to see it, because we share those things on the Internet? So here are some things to remember. We need to seek God's will, not our own. We need to recognize that we do not determine who's called. My experience is that the ones who come along are the ones, the last ones you'd think of. Of all my friends in high school that I tried to pass the word to, there was only one that actually uh, came along and went to Ambassador College. And he was the one that I didn't tell because I didn't think he would want to know. And that's what got him curious because he heard things from other people and wanted to know what I was into. It's funny how that works, isn't it? But that shows you how much I know because I, I didn't think that there was any possibility he'd ever get interested. Now, it is interesting that there were eight of us in that school that eventually did come along, not necessarily because of, of uh, uh, certainly not because of me, but uh, they're, they're just, it, it, was, it was just an unusual thing that eight young people from that school about four of which uh, did go to Ambassador College at one time. Pray for wisdom. We, we want it to be God's will, not our own. Ask God for wisdom to know when to walk through a door, an open door, and when it is not an open door. Sometimes people say things that you just know they don't really want to know. And it takes wisdom to know, is this a sincere question or is it not? Pray for humility. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what God wants. And we shouldn't keep score, keep notches. Oh, this person came along, this person, this person. You know, they have people that might be that way. You don't want to do that. Uh, pray for humility, that if someone comes along because of your example, it's God that did it, that he did it through you. Pray for patience. That's part of our problem. We want to convert people right now. And we may need to wait for God. It is God's timing. Timing and balance are so very important. We must not try to force ourselves on others. And that's one of the things that Dr. Merrith points out in this, this article. Uh, and and I, I hope all of you will get that out and, and read it and just think about it. Think about what can I do? How can I do everything better than what I'm doing right now? John 6:44. No man can come to me except the Father in heaven draw him. We're all familiar with that. And unless God is opening a mind, you can't open it no matter what you say, no matter what you do. I know, I've tried. It doesn't work. I don't care how bright we think we are, how strong our arguments are. It's not about logic. It's about emotion in too many cases. It's about whether God is calling someone or not. And if He's not calling them, there's nothing that we can do to change that. We need to be careful, though, not to be ashamed of the truth. Mark 8. Mark 8. Because sometimes I think we don't talk to people because we're ashamed of saying something. We, we don't want somebody to think we're like all the other people out there, like a, a Jehovah's Witness or some other uh, individual or group. We, we're afraid to, uh, to speak up when maybe we should. In Mark, the 8th chapter... Verse 34, it says, he says, when he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, are we ashamed of what we believe? Don't think so, but I think that there are some who may be just a little hesitant, lacking the boldness to speak up when the time is right, when it is the right time. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this uh, adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You know, it is interesting. He says, in this sinful generation, this adulterous generation, 
when you put that in the context of the world in which we live, what does the world do? It tries to shame anyone who believes in godly standards. I think I did mention this once before when I was visiting here. Uh, one of our, our, our members, I was asking uh, a younger member, he was about 15 at the time, I said, what's it like in school where you are? This was in, a, in Europe. And uh, he said, well, if the subject of homosexuality comes up, he said, if you are against it, then everyone will turn around and look at you as though there's something wrong with you. They will just turn around and stare at you. It's a form of intimidation, and frankly, the teachers are very good at creating that kind of an atmosphere. And yet, what did, uh, what did God tell, was it Ezekiel? Don't be afraid of their stares. I'll make your forehead a lot stronger than theirs, like adamant flint or something. We have to recognize that as we move into a much more sinful age, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to believe it can get worse. But we shouldn't be afraid to speak up in the right way because our silence will indicate to people that we agree. Now, we have to be careful on the job. We have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But we shouldn't be ashamed of what we believe, and we shouldn't be afraid to say, well, I don't agree with that. We don't want to get in an argument, but we need to be able to stand up. And so sometimes in services, I know that when certain subjects come up, I, I, I'll say something, even turn to a few scriptures on the subject, because if we don't say anything, we have a whole generation that's growing up. If they don't hear the truth, if they don't hear it from us, they're not going to hear it. Because they're not going to hear it at school. They're only hearing one side of things there. And we have to be willing to speak up. I remember one time doing that. This was, oh, this has to be four, 13, 14 years ago. And we had a couple of visitors there, and I found out later they were lesbians. Two girls. The daughter of, of one of our members and her friend. Uh, you have to speak the truth. You have to speak the truth. Otherwise, nobody hears it. He says, don't be ashamed of him. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, and we're there, if not in spades, he says, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes um, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You know, God has called us to do a work. That's our mission. We have a responsibility. As I've said before, if God is not calling everyone, why is he calling anyone? He's calling some today because there's a work to do. And many of you are involved very directly in that work. And all of us are involved through our prayers, through our tithes or offerings, through the example that we set not only here but in the world both ways by what we do on social media with our personal evangelism, as it were, carefully used, not going out here just blabbing everything that we believe and, and forcing it on people, trying to force it on people. But when a door opens up, to walk through that door. Not being ashamed of what we believe so that we have open up a magazine or open up the Bible even on a plane. And there are people out there who will be curious, people who want to know. Sometimes they'll say something. Others may think you're a nut. Okay, so, so be it. You're not going to see them again. They're on a plane, on a train, on a bus. But somebody else might ask you a few questions, especially in this part of the country, because they are much more religious here, much more openly religious than they are in many other parts of the world, as, as most of you know. God has called us to do a work. The most effective way we can do it is by working together in a unified effort. By working together. And this means we have an obligation to pray for God to bless our efforts. I wonder if we really 
you know, all of us collectively put just a little more effort into our prayers when we have these Tomorrow's World presentations, when the telecast goes out, even when it's being prepared, when the articles are written, uh, praying for the gifts of the Spirit. If we put a little bit more effort into it, you wonder what might be the results. We have our financial part to support the work. And I think that many people are going above and beyond in that area. And for those of us who have come into the church because of somebody else's ties, we thank them for it. Many of the people who who supported the work when I came into the church, started attending in, in uh, 1964, are probably not around anymore. But I owe those people a debt of gratitude. We all owe somebody a debt of gratitude because they had the vision to support this work and to go forth with the message. We each have additional opportunities to personally preach the gospel through our example, by walking through the doors when they open to us, and we can present doors for people by opening up the magazine and others' presence. And we can also do, through, do so through social media. So this individual who wrote to me asking what can people do, I told him I'd probably give a sermon on it someday. And uh, so here it is. Uh, I think that we need to understand that there is much that we can do. There's much we're doing. For probably most of you, you're already doing all these things. And to one degree or another. But let's think about what we can do. Let's, let's evaluate. What are the gifts that God has given to me? And how can I serve God more on an individual basis in preaching the gospel to this world?